Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brett Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here with us today. Got a lot of things to talk about. Gosh, we're going to be talking about commercial real estate. It seems like you can't pick up a paper or turn the TV and not hear about how bad things are in the commercial real estate market. We'll talk about what's the uh, what the truth is there. Also, too, another thing, too, you can't turn the TV and not hear about NVIDIA. We'll talk about should you buy NVIDIA now. And then Chinese car makers. There's some unfortunate news coming out there we want to discuss because, uh, well, it's not good and we want to talk about it. So with me is uh, Chase Wilson. Chase, uh, what do you got? Well, as always, we're going to take a closer look at uh, some of the, the popular companies out there. And I, I was kind of surprised by this. Uh, some big changes to the Dow Jones coming up here. Amazon will be being added to the Dow Jones there. So we thought, hey, let's take a look at Amazon here. Also going to look at Capital One. They just announced an acquisition for Discover, so I want to take a closer look at them. And Roku, I know they were in the news last week. I think, gosh, they reported some questionable numbers, some troubling numbers. Stock went down. Take a closer look. And if we have time, uh, we will also look at Simpra. Uh, I think utilities... Haven't gotten much love lately, so I thought we'd give them a little bit of love here and see if that's worth a, a buy. You know, I want to let people know that we don't look at these ahead of time. We don't, we don't know what the fundamentals are. So when we're giving those to you, we're going over them. It's fresh to us as well. So we pick them because of things that we hear on the news, trending, things that we think that you want to hear about. So we have no idea. Semper buy or sell? We'll find out and go over the numbers. So let's talk about commercial real estate because uh, we do hear that uh, commercial real estate pro properties are having problems. But- the big question is, how bad are those problems? After the 2008-2009 financial crisis, by the second quarter of 2010, commercial property had a record 194.8 billion properties in distress. Now, compare that to the end of 2023, when commercial properties in distress totaled $86 billion. That's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> Better than half. <laughs> Again, $194 billion and $86 billion. Wow, yeah, that's a little different scenario there. Also, too, think about how much commercial real estate has appreciated since 2010. So, uh, you know, you're taking a, I'm going to say, a distressed total from a larger bucket, essentially. So if you look at it at a percentage, I, I, I would be willing to venture to say that percentage is even smaller than the, the relative dollar amount. True, true. Another point to consider is after the financial crisis, there were not many funds on the sidelines. And today, real estate private equity funds or equity firms are sitting on $544 billion in cash, which is a record level up from $457 billion in cash at the end of 2022. With that much cash, well, they well may be interested in doing some deals and put a floor in on many commercial properties across the country. And Chase, we are pretty familiar with this because in our portfolio, we have, I think, we'll, we'll put around 5 or 6% of our portfolio is in commercial real estate th through a REIT. And, you know, we listened to the conference call <clears throat> from one of them, I think it was like last week, and even the CEO goes, you cannot even pick up anything and not see something about how bad commercial real estate is. He goes, it was even on, I guess, 60 minutes a week or two ago, and they're picking up on it. But what he explained, which people don't understand this, 
is that it's like the bottom 10 or 15% is the real estate that's having the problems. The top 10 to 15%, they're doing fine. Increasing rents, increasing leasing. I mean, everything's fine. So you, you listen to the regular media, you think, oh my gosh, a whole commercial real estate market is terrible. And it is not. And a good example, you said too, that $86 billion percentage-wise, it's very low probably. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, you look at the right buildings. I mean, if things were terrible, you would not be able to increase rents. People would not be coming. <laughs> if you were increasing rents, you'd have nobody coming into your buildings. I mean, it, it, it's... Again, indicative of you know just a small subset of properties that are really causing a lot of issues. And I'm going to say there's a good chunk of properties that are still doing very, very well. You just don't want to buy the bad properties. And it's kind of funny. I, I'll say this very lightly, <laughs> but you could make a lot of money finding some of the bad properties <laughs> that it will make it. I don't want to take that chance. I, I'd rather buy these good properties that, frankly, they've been discounted heavily. Yeah. And I think you can do very well, not to mention many of these real estate investment trusts are paying very strong dividends, sometimes close to 10%, that you know some of them actually already gone through a dividend cut, which I believe makes those dividends even stronger, not to mention potential price appreciation on those REITs going forward. I, I, I think this is a sector that has been so hated in the market that over the next five, 10 years, I think it could be a big winner. And, and, and I don't know the yield. I think the REIT that we have, the commercial property REIT, I think the yield is what, seven, 8% now? What's yeah, the yield? about yeah, 8%. Yeah. And what we look at saying, where's this gonna be in five years? <clears throat> because we're locking in a seven to 8% yield, which they will probably increase as time goes on. But also too, we're getting such a good price on that. This is gonna be a very good performer. And again, we're looking down the road five years. And this is how you do the investing for the long term. And it's just, there was another, I think he worked for Warren Buffett, uh, and he now his family was in a real estate. I, I think it's one of his lieutenants in his. Is family. it one of his lieutenants? I yeah, I remember reading this. I think it was in the journal about a, a week or two ago, and how they're starting to buy up commercial property. I believe it's in New York and San Francisco. Yeah. Now those are the ones that they're going to make a lot of money because, but they know what they're doing. Yeah. But just being a smart investor and saying, wait a minute, this this whole throwing out the the bay with the bathwater, all commercial real estate's not bad. And also, too, we've talked before, and if you don't get our newsletter, you, you, you're missing out because we've talked in the past about how CEOs and CFOs are saying, yes, the trend is we're going to start bringing employees back even more more than now. That's just a positive for commercial real estate, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. And the other thing, too, I'm, I'm going to give a little bit away here about the, the REIT that we own. Is, not, not too much. No, I, I'm not going to give away the name or anything, <laughs> but in the conference call, they talked about we pretty much addressed all of our debt maturities now through 2026. So, I mean, I kind of talked about, I think 2025, you could see better rates. I think by 2026, we're going to see rates that are even more normalized. So they don't have that potential risk of, you know, debt coming due next year that they're going to have to refinance at a very hefty rate. And there could be potential problems. They've already taken care of all that. A lot of the concerns now are out and now we can kind of move forward with it. And does that mean it's gonna go up tomorrow? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But I think over the next three years, I think it's gonna be a huge, huge winner for us. And it, it kind of reminds me, we look at the, the guide to the markets from JP Morgan Chase, at least on an annual basis, and you always can kind of see the annual returns of you know like equities, real estate, bonds. And for years, real estate was topping the S&P 500. Yep. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Over the last two years, that has not been the case. <laughs> it doesn't even register. <laughs> <laughs> but but I do think going forward, I, I would not be surprised to see real estate again top the S P five hundred. 
Not to mention, it is such a small component of the S&P. If you own that index, you're getting no exposure to real estate. You have to know what you're doing, but again, it comes back to buy low and sell high and be patient. I'm going to add the be patient there because it's not going to happen in two or three months. Well, we bought, I'll tell you, we bought the commercial real estate last year. Yeah. It didn't do that great. Yeah. Oh, did we panic? No. I, no. I think it's a, a great, great holding. Yeah. When we, we bought it, we said, yeah, we bought this for two or three years. And in the meantime, we collect a nice, nice dividend. Let, let's move on and talk about uh, should you buy NVIDIA? Uh, again, another one that, uh, and I almost hate turning on CNBC anymore because it seems that's all they talk about. Uh, we all know that NVIDIA has done very well. And after the most recent report, the stock is at a new high. Uh, I believe it did pull back on Friday, but I think that was on Thursday. And I, I think on Friday it hit a new high and then it pulled back, I believe. Yeah. I heard the dumbest thing from Money Manager on CNBC, and, and I used to like this guy. He was a value investor, but he, he said, who didn't own NVIDIA, and said, if you don't own NVIDIA, you need to buy 1% of the stock in your portfolio. The reason I say it is dumb, because even, I, and I think this guy, and I like this guy, I used to like his, his philosophy, I think it's so dumb to say you should at least buy 1% of NVIDIA in your portfolio, because even if that stock doubles from here, that would only increase your investment return on your entire portfolio by 1%. In, in other words, if your return was 10% over the next year, with the addition of video, your return, your return would be 11% if the stock doubles from here. This also assumes that had you invested 1% somewhere else, it would have made no return at all. When it comes to investing, discipline is very important. And yes, we all want to invest in investments that will increase in value, but an investor must understand their objective and their discipline stay the course, and realize that one will not always own all the hot stocks and, and frankly should not chase returns. And we've talked about this a lot in the past. We talked about NVIDIA last week and Microsoft. And I'll tell you, I, I really commend NVIDIA. It was a fantastic quarter. But do you buy it now? No. I, I mean, it, it just, they keep coming in with, I'm going to say kind of surprises. And congratulations again if you held it, done well. But how many more surprises could they have? What's going to be that next act? And we've talked about how Jensen Wong, I mean, he's done a such such a great job pivoting the companies a few different times now. Right. Can he do it one more time? One more time. I, I don't know. I, and yeah. their market cap now is $2 trillion. I mean, is it going to go to a $4 trillion market cap? I'd say highly unlikely. <laughs> well, I'd say $4 trillion market cap in the next few years. Over time, obviously. Right. Some, <laughs> someday it will. And, and the thing is, it, this is portfolio management because it's not just about investment management, like what we talk about buying companies on sale and so forth, but you have to build a good portfolio. And and if you just want bragging rights and you go out and buy 100 shares in NVIDIA, you know, and it's like 0.01% of your portfolio, you, you know, you got the bragging rights. But it's not going to help your return longer term. You have to focus just not on investing money in good quality businesses that will go up, but also on the allocation, the portfolio, uh, how you manage that portfolio. Yeah, I mean, it, it is so important in understanding uh, as well when you're managing the portfolio, why you're buying things. And why are people buying NVIDIA? Oh, because it's gone up in AI. Right. Well, what kind of happens when that no longer is fueling the fire? Now, what do you buy next? You know, are, are you always going to chase what's hot? And, and frankly, the unfortunate part is that at some point, NVIDIA could fall 30, 40%. And actually, I see that they were up a, a little bit yesterday. They're up to 788, but it looks like their their day range was like 823, which is their new, yeah. new all-time high. But there's no real justification for buying NVIDIA other than it's made a lot of money and it's an AI. Yeah. And, and they've done a great job. But again, they, and people say, oh, they're not pricey because, you know, of the Ford and so forth. I, 
I don't understand enough about the the chips that they're building for AI and so forth. I think a lot of people don't understand it, but they're saying, oh, they're gonna build all these chips, and I'm just afraid there's gonna be too much inventory, and then companies saying, we've talked about this again in the newsletter, that, wait a minute, CEOs are saying they want it, but they're not gonna use it for another year or two, so eventually you might have too much inventory, and this could really devastate because everybody's so excited, so much hype here on NVIDIA, that all of a sudden it's like, no, we're not gonna buy more right now, we can, we can wait a year. Yeah, so. and all of a sudden the earnings now decline, and now your multiple's higher because you're, you're going off a declining earnings base, which, I, I mean, that's the, the big thing. If I held NVIDIA, I would not just wanna say, oh, well, you know, there's so much excitement around, and that's why their earnings are gonna keep going up. What if that cycle stops? Yeah. Is there, is there any reoccurring revenue that this company has that they can make money off of and isn't a large enough base because again everybody gets their AI chips three four five years from now well I don't need an AI chip I already have mine and, and here's something too you should look at is that how long does an AI chip last as yeah. far as technology and, and innovation because if it lasts I don't know two or three years before I have to replace it well how many do you need yeah. I mean that there's a certain thing that people aren't looking at it's just once again on Wall Street the hype and again Nvidia could go to a thousand dollars but if you don't know why and you don't have something to back it up, you, you could get burned. I, I remember one time Qualcomm. Oh, Qualcomm was like at, at 750. Oh, it's going to 1500. Never made it yeah. because like reality set in. So we will see. But again, just to go out as this, this gentleman said, uh, I think it was on Fast Money. Like, no, that's a crazy thing. Don't put 1% of NVIDIA in your portfolio. And I think he did it because he is a value investor. He gets beaten up a lot lately. <laughs> I got to feel sorry for the guy, but well, he, stick to what you do. Stick to what you do. And, and then this way, he kind of has a cop out where it's like, oh, yeah, I know. I, I told you to put some NVIDIA in. Or <laughs> if it doesn't do well, you kind of come back and say, well, that's why I told you to only do 1% of NVIDIA. It's, it's, yeah. it's a win-win for him. And not a not not a win-win for somebody in their portfolio. Yeah, and I would never do it because we stick to our discipline. When you start changing your discipline and try to make excuses, you're not going to do well longer term. What was the one you bought? You changed your discipline. I remember NBCI Universal. Yeah. I bought it because uh, GE was part of it, and I bought it ten and won't forget ten dollars a share. Like, wow, this is going to be great because GE's behind it. I ended up selling it two because they were not making any money, and the stock never recovered. Um, and I did it because I want to be part of the hype. And that was back in, uh, I believe, 2000, 2001, over 20 years ago. And that's what people do. They, after they sell NVIDIA, they'll look for the next NVIDIA, and they yep. don't pick the right thing, and all of a sudden you lose that money. So yep. just be careful. Well, let's talk about Chinese car makers, because a Chinese electric automaker, BYD, is sending chills across the markets in the U.S. Elon Musk said if there are not trade barriers established, and Elon Musk is a very strong open market guy, but he said they will pretty much demolish most other car companies in the world. In a memo from executives at Toyota, they stated Chinese companies have a 25 to 30% advantage over global competitors when manufacturing EVs. If not protected against, Chinese EV companies could storm the US market. In 2018, the Trump administration applied an additional 25% tariff on Chinese cars on top of the regular 2.5% tariff on all cars coming to the U.S. 
And, and to get around this, BYD is looking at building a factory right across the border in Mexico. Uh, I'll say they haven't purchased any land yet, and this is definitely a few years down the road. Obviously, you got to get a land, get a building. Right. <laughs> it, it's going to take some time. But it could be devastating to all car makers three to five years from now. If they do buy land, they start building and they start manufacturing cars. And, and else, too, I mean, look to see what these BYD cars look like. And, and some of them, well, they're not that bad looking. And I know they're pretty darn inexpensive. So whoever comes president in November 2024, I do hope they look seriously at the situation, prevent BYD or any other Chinese car maker from flooding our car market. It, it could, I mean, devastate. You know, the unions have pushed mm-hmm. up wages so much here that they have to sell cars at a certain level. You push these cars in here. I mean, you push down the the price that car companies could sell it for, and and now you squeeze their margins. And Detroit's in a whole lot of problems. And I saw when the <clears throat> the union got their their concessions that they wanted. I, I I think the wages went from I don't know fifty to eighty dollars an hour, and that's why Elon Musk is saying that in Chinese they have like a what a twenty five to thirty percent advantage. And I looked at the cars. I mean, it was just pictures. But a couple of them were kind of attractive looking. Yeah. You know, I don't know how they are if they're like a tin can when you get into them. But if they're built well, um, it's going to be like back in the '90s. You won't remember this, but back in the '90s, the automakers got killed. I think it was the early '90s, maybe late '80s, where they got killed because of uh, uh, Japanese yeah. automakers coming in and just destroying the American car makers. So I, I think the American car makers are much stronger now, Ford and, and General Motors, but still. They've got high expenses, and if you're selling a, an electric vehicle for forty thousand, and you know twenty five percent would be what ten thousand dollars. Gee, I, I can buy a BYD for thirty thousand. I'll probably go buy that thirty thousand car. Well, and, and I mean China kind of knows that, which is why China has a lot of government subsidies for yeah. different areas. So I mean that's why they can produce them for so so little. I mean if our government was just funding the automakers essentially and giving them all this money, I mean they could have huge profits and sell the the, the cars for nothing because it's like, oh, we get all our profits from the government. Right. I mean that's kind of where I think a lot of these like Elon Musk's and other people's it, it's not a fair competitive market and he's all for fair market competition, right. but not when you have a government backing that is completely just funneling money into a particular business. Yeah, and and we do have some concessions for, you know, our automakers here. They get certain benefits from the government. They do certain things, but it's nowhere near the, the, the magnitude that the Chinese government does. I mean, it's a don't forget, China is a communist country. They can do anything they want. Yeah. They can say, you know what, we're going to give you $5 billion. Just go build cars. Yeah. That's it. We're going to yeah. do that. So it's 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 th- th- that's why we do have the tariffs, and that's why I hope whoever the next president is come November, they realize this. And, and also too, it's it's a shame that China could build something again. They talked right across the border, Tijuana, to build a factory right there. That gets around the rules. So I don't know how they. Oh, yeah, with the the what is it NAFTA or the the North yeah. American Treaty? Yeah. Yeah. And I was gonna say while we're on the the car topics, you know, kind of piggyback off the the whole Nvidia situation, is you know the uh, Rivian. And kind of, as I was saying before, people, when they make all this money in NVIDIA, they now look for the next NVIDIA and they pick the wrong thing. I think a lot of people with Tesla, they're like, oh, there's going to be, you know, I'm looking for the next Tesla. You know, Rivian, I think it hit like 170 or something as its high. Uh, Yeah, over the last month, they're down 35% now at $10 a share. Yeah, I think on Friday, I think it closed at. You said ten dollars a share, right? Ten oh seven. Yeah, ten oh seven. And I know that there's people that like, oh, it was down to fifty. Oh, we got to buy it. This is great. Well, yeah, you got a deal from when it was 170, but now at 50, you're down what 90 percent. Yeah. So yeah, just because it drops doesn't mean you should buy it. So and and I don't really like those cars. I, I don't like the trucks. I don't like the front. I 
I'll say I like the SUVs better than the trucks. I, yeah. I just I don't really like the trucks either though. They just I don't think they I don't like it the doesn't front. fit what I want. Yeah. I, I yeah. like I like my Chevy Silverado. I well, you're, you're a Chevy guy. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, if you want more information on this, uh, you know, we do the newsletter. That's where we get this information from. Uh, it is free. Go to our website, uh, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You'll see other stories in the, the newsletter, like uh, tech companies layoffs, fast food market share, prescription pickup, long-term investment plan. A lot of, a lot of things that are going to make you a smart investor. Again, it's free. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smart investing. So smartinvesting2000.com, and it's a uh, free right there in the middle of the page. All right, uh, time to talk to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Uh, Harrison, how you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. Today we're talking about investment return of annuities. I, 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 I know what you're going to say, but I, I even hate saying those words because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people. In, I think I'm endorsing them. Yeah, right, right. So with an annuity, you're basically exchanging your assets for income, which means you're buying a pension. And it's kind of funny because pensions have such a positive connotation to them, but annuities aren't quite as popular, even though, again, they're basically the same thing. Now, like you said, Brent, we don't sell annuities. We don't recommend annuities. And the reason is, you know, when, when you look at the numbers, they're just not that appealing for an investor. So to illustrate this, I went and got a quote for a 65-year-old purchasing a $500,000 immediate annuity. So in exchange for the $500,000, they will then receive monthly income of $3,000 a month for the rest of their life, or $36,000 a year. So that's a 7.2% yield um, compared to the $500,000 that they bought the annuity for. Now, keep in mind, the $500,000 is now gone, so they can't decide down the road to do something else with their money. So statistically, someone who is 65 has a life expectancy to live to the age of about 83 or 18 more years. So with this information, we can calculate the expected return of that $500,000 investment, and it comes out to about 2.88% per year. So in other words, if you were to invest $500,000 and then withdraw $3,000 per month for the next 18 years, you would need that $500,000 to return 2.88% per year in order for it to last that full 18 years. And from an investment standpoint, most people would not be happy with an annualized return of less than 3% over almost two decades. But that's what people agree to when they purchase an annuity. So don't get confused by that 7.2% yield, which is misleading since those payments are going to stop when you die. Instead, calculate the actual return to see if it still seems like a good idea. And keep in mind, the insurance company and the agent selling that annuity are not going to break down the actual return for you. You know, here and, and this is so important. I I, I want to just like shout this out from the rooftops because people are like, oh, I'm getting a 7.2 percent return for my annuity. That's far better than your distribution rate of six percent. Now, uh, again, when they pass away, uh, we generally have the principal there for them. But the other thing too, 2.88 percent over 18 years is your real return because the money's gone. Um, I, I I imagine the longer you live, the better your, your return. But do you have to live like 30 to 40 years to get even a, a 5% return? Have you gone beyond that? 18 years? Well, I mean, if you think about it, since that yield is 7.2% of the principal, if you lived forever, 
the most return you could get ever you could ever get is 7.2 percent. Okay. So your return is basically always going to be less than 7.2. But you know most people aren't going to be living till they're 200 years old. They'll you know live somewhere in the 80s, maybe into the 90s. And at that point, you're again accepting return of two, three percent or so. So you know it, it's important to look at the return from that point to say, well, what am I giving up, and what am I actually getting in return, and how long do I get that benefit for? So you know in this case, you're going to have to live for um, you know, 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it is, just to break even on that $500,000. And then, you know, more than likely, if you have a normal life expectancy, it's 2.88% is just not an expected return that, that's attractive that anybody wants. Here's a, here's a fun number for you. 30-year treasury right now, 4.37%. Now, here's the, the thing. You wouldn't be able to put all your money in the 4.37% yielding treasury because you're going to take 7.2%. So then you need to make sales. But just very simplistically, you could put like 70% of your money in a 30-year treasury, 30% in a money market account, and you would do better, I think, than a fixed income and annuity there. Well, the other, it's funny that you bring that up, Chase, because what you could do if, speaking of treasuries- And I don't recommend that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. But you could do a ladder treasury um, kind of plan where, you know, you buy some one year, you buy some two year, you buy some 10 year, you buy some 20 year, and you kind of ladder them out so that, because I mean, right now the yield curve is all around four in the four percents or so, which is again, more than that 2.88%. So again, like you said, you're better off buying treasuries, which is more or less cash at the end of the day um, than buying, you know, one of these products. And even with treasuries, you know, you still own that money. You still have control of it. So if you wanted to make a change, you could, um, or, you know, at the end of the day, that the best thing to do would be invest your money in something that you're comfortable with. That's going to have a high expected return over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever your life expectancy is. And that is going to be the way that you're going to generate the most amount of income, have the most flexibility, be able to pass money on to your, your heirs, um, and, you know, not accepting this less than 3% return. And Harrison, it's just so frustrating because there's uh, insurance salespeople out there that they only give the 7.2%. They don't dive into it like you did. Uh, I believe the commission, I think it's lower when you do an immediate annuity, but they're still making a big commission here. I'm, I'm going to say, was it 3 4%? Do you even know what it is when you annuitize annuity? Is it- yeah, I mean, depending on the company, you could get 3 4 maybe 5%. But again, on $500,000, if you got a 4% commission, that's $20,000. So if someone knows that they can make 20 grand by selling this annuity, you know, they're going to try and paint it as in the positive light that they can. So, and and one trick they could do, which I've seen this happen, they do a regular annuity, they get their 7% commission, then a year later they can annuitize it, can't they? Yeah, yeah, yep. that's that's exactly right. So. That's what they do. So, Harrison, we got to wrap it up. Uh, we're coming to the uh, the break here, but uh, thank you very much. I hope people listen again if they want to have more information about this. You can actually do the numbers for their own annuity to kind of figure them out, or if they're looking at doing that, we can do the numbers for them. Harrison, thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you later. All right. Bye bye. Again, as uh, Harrison Johnson, uh, CFP, he is our uh, financial planner at Wilsey Asset Management. If you do want to sit down with him and, and have a conversation, give him a call at the office eight five eight. Two two four zero 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 four. Again, that's eight five eight two two four zero 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 four. Or go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can set an appointment with him. And again, if you're thinking about getting an annuity because that sounds good at seven point two percent, before you do that, 
get the numbers, we'll figure it out for you. An annuity to me is not an investment, it's a contract and you have to understand the contract. And a lot of contracts are complicated, so <laughs> you gotta be very, very careful with them. It's many times not yeah. worth it. It's not all cracked up. It, yep. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And they are sold for big commissions. Alrighty, uh, we'll take a quick break here. When we come back, we're gonna be talking about uh, the companies. I think first up is Amazon, so stay with us. You listen to Smart Investing Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Smart Investing Show. We got the second half of the show now. We talk about uh, different companies. Uh, we call them companies or equity stocks. Uh, your ownership. That's what you actually are looking at uh, that we're going to take a look at. Uh, we got the great ones that Chase mentioned. Uh, let's start off with uh, a, a very small company. Nobody really knows about this company called Amazon. Uh, <laughs> they're a, a, a great business. And we're actually looking at doing some advertising with them. It's a phenomenal what they showed us, all the different places that they're at. I, I can't even remember. It's like, 40 of them. I, it's it's an impressive company, to say yeah. the least. It's a little bit scary sometimes to realize how much Amazon knows about you Yes, when you really think about it. But, I mean, the way they're able to now monetize that data via their advertising, I think that advertising business is going to be a huge growth opportunity for them. I, I yeah. really do, and it's... It's a shame it's not more value because it's it's an impressive company at the end of the day. But I did want to, before we look at the numbers, talk about what's happening with the Dow. Sure. And what's actually happening is Walmart did a three-for-one stock split. Mm -hmm. So since it's a price-weighted index, that opened up some room in the index. So what they're doing is they're they're kicking out Walgreens Boot Alliance. Uh, Which a is lot of people, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people say they're giving them the boot. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and and that'll actually be starting on February 26th. But the... Uh, I'm going to say the funny thing is the last time or when Walgreens boots came into the, the index in 2018, do you know who they replaced? Uh, I don't know. GE. GE, of course. And GE was part of the Dow since 1896. Wow. But since GE was replaced in 2018, the stock's up about 100%. Ooh. While Walgreens boots alliance is down <laughs> about 70%. So... I don't know. It doesn't mean that because GE obviously was going through some tough times. So a lot of people are worried like, oh, Walgreens Boots Alliance. I don't know. Maybe Walgreens Boots Alliance will get things turned around. And However, the difference is that uh, the Dow is not market cap weighted. It is price weighted. I think GE was, what, 7 or $9 a share. It would not have counted for very much uh, of the Dow being 8 $10 a share. Yeah, and, and them getting rid of Walgreens Boots Alliance is not going to have a major impact since it, it was a, a lower share price. It was only 0.36% right. of the Dow Jones. And you said Amazon's coming in, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that'll be a fairly size. What, what, 140, 150? We'll find yeah, out. Yeah, and I, Microsoft's one of the larger ones at 7%. Apple, which has, a, I'm going to say, a similar stock price in terms of the dollar price, yeah. is around 3% of the Dow. So that means Amazon would probably be around there as well. Okay. Well, let's take a look at the numbers on Amazon. Uh, their symbol is AMZN. They are in the internet retail industry. Now, we do see shares uh, that are floating on the short side. It's only 1.1. No surprise there. Surprise on this, only 61% institutional owned. I thought that'd be higher. Uh, we do see the PE, no surprise here, 60.4. That's a little bit higher than the industry at 57.7. Price to sales, 3.2 above the industry at 2.3. Price to book value, 10.6. That's uh, very good because the industry is at 58.3. And price of cash flow, 21.6 versus 16.7. Very important is the peg ratio. That's your price earnings divided by growth. Tells you how much you're paying for the future growth. 
3.3 versus 14.9. So that's a pretty good number for a pig ratio. We do see no earnings over the past year growth. Uh, we do see sales were up 11.8%. I'm surprised that's not higher than that. The analysts give it a five-year growth rate of only 14.8%. The industry is at 157 so I'm surprised Amazon's not better than the industry. Uh, they do not pay a dividend, so no yield there. Uh, take a look at the balance sheet. Current ratio, 1.1. That's not quite as good as the industry at 1.4. Debt to equity, 0.7. That's the same as the industry. We do see a net profit margin of 5.3% versus 4.3. And return on equity is 15.1% about the same as the industry at 14.8, so not too bad there. What, what do you got, Chase? Yeah, so current price here for Amazon is $174.99. Uh, 52-week high actually hit that yesterday, $175.75. Uh, kind of surprising, though. It's actually still not its all-time high. It looks like uh, back in 2021, kind of middle of the year, is around $185, $186 a share. So even after about an 82% gain over the last one year, they still haven't recaptured that all-time yeah. high. Going forward for Amazon, though, let's go out to December 2025 now. Got That's that's weird to say. <laughs> 2024. Here before you know it, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the estimated earnings per share is five dollars and thirty-seven cents. It gives us a target sell price here about eighty-nine dollars and fourteen cents. I mean, Amazon is still a growth company. I mean, they are looking for good earnings growth. There's no doubt about it. I mentioned the advertising business before, uh, but again, as a value investor, I just can't justify buying a, a business that's trading at over 30 times earnings. You know, no, over the years, uh, we are value investors. We, we have held Google. We have held Apple because they became a value company. I don't believe Amazon has ever become a value company, and I don't believe they ever will as long as Jeff Bezos is around. I think they'll always keep growing and growing. That's our whole thing, growth, not not value. Yeah, and uh, I mean, but you look at 2022, I was looking from top to bottom. Right. Really nothing that drastic changed in 2022, and the stock fell over 50%. Yeah. So it, that's one thing you but have to- But it still wasn't a buy for it. So no, still, no, yeah, it still, still wasn't a buy. PE was what, still 25 or something. Yeah, but I, I mean, you just don't know if, if something is going to come that is going to kind of be like that 2022 where it's like nothing really kicked off what should have been a 50 percent plus decline in the stock and it's like the tech boom and bust you know sometimes things just trigger and that's why i just won't buy these companies is because there's you just hope it's going to keep going higher and higher and higher and at some point it doesn't and, and you and you really have yeah and we've said amazon's a great company we talked about advertising with them because now in prime video they are putting in commercials if you're watching that who knows in the future you might see will says a management there but it 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 just it, it just is a great company but i can't put my arms around why you should buy it because I can't put any numbers to it. I, and, and if somebody, when you, here, here's the thing with value investing, you say, well, you bought it, went down 30%. Well, because we paid, you know, 12 times earnings, now it's 10 times earnings. We know it will come back. But you buy a, a, an Amazon at 175 and it goes down to 140, it may come back, but you can't say, well, it's because the earnings, you know, are still this. I mean, and I do not go for the stuff saying, and I've heard this also on uh, some of the talking heads on CNBC, oh, but now the norm PE for them is 40. No, that uh, eventually everything will come back to the market, and, and that's why the norm for the PE ratio is generally 14 to 17 times earnings, the average over 100 years. I think that is one of the stupidest things they can say because the reason they were trading at 40 times earnings before is because they were getting an excessive growth rate. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to look at their specific PE multiple because they were getting really good growth. Well, if their growth was, let's say, 30% and now their growth is 10%, well, yeah, you shouldn't trade at 40 times earnings. You should trade at maybe 20 times earnings. So you, 
you don't want to compare the PE multiple because the earnings growth picture is way different. And this is why growth investors, you got to be so careful with, with these companies. And we always go back to the tech boom and bust and uh, even the, the Nifty 50 back in the 73, 74 era where it's like, oh, but the, you know, these are Polaroid. These are, uh, you know, Procter & Gamble. These, these, it's fine to do that. And it crashed. I mean, everything comes back to the norm. And again, people say, oh, it's been fine. But they're only looking at three, four, five-year period. You've got to look at a longer period because things will change uh, back to the norm. Yep. So, all righty. Uh, is uh, our mortgage gentleman here, Robert? He is here. So, so let's talk about the mortgages for a little bit. And for that, we're going to turn to Robert B. Hick, who is president of Countywide Mortgage Lending. Robert, you with us? Of course I am. Good morning. Well, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I, I like I like your topic. I know you always pick good topics, but I but I really like this topic because you're talking about how to increase your credit score in a hurry. So that's the big thing in a hurry. How are we gonna do this in a hurry? So there's a couple of little tricks of the trade, if I may, and and one of the, some of this is just common sense. But when you're in the heat of the battle, you're making offers. You don't think about it. So the first one is you want to try to keep your credit utilization, meaning all your charges on your credit card debt, below 30%. Wait, say, say again, and you want to keep below 30% combined? Below 30%. So if I had $10,000 in credit cards, I want to owe less than $3,000. Oh, okay. And you can extrapolate that from whatever amount you have. Here, here's the reason this came up. I have a client who pays their bills on time completely. They only have a few credit cards, but they use one a majority of the time. And he actually has this one card that's uh, a $15,000 available to him, but he owes about 14 and change on it. And when the bill comes due, what it does is it adds the interest to it. And on his credit report, it shows that he owes $15,200, let's say. And that's more than what his credit line's worth. And it whacks him pretty bad. Oh, wow. And he pays it all in time. He pays it down. He pays everything else is free and clear. So he doesn't understand why his credit's not 800. <laughs> and the reality is hit him for about 60 points. It's, it's a lot. Uh, 60 points so, and a reduction as a credit score? in his credit score reduction, wow. right? Which means he's gonna pay higher in interest rates and has less options and all the other things. So keep your credit cards uh, below 30%, pay them before the due date, because just it, when it shows on your credit card statement, that doesn't mean that's when the credit bureau sweeps the information. I know this gets a little convoluted, but the reality is these are the things that we do. So if you're Payments due on the 18th, pay it on the 15th or the 10th and let it sit so that it has enough time for it to get their process, uh, go on to the credit system where the credit bureau sweeps and can pick it up. And Robert, would this help someone in that situation where, and, and again, I don't know why he brings a credit card to the limit of 15000 every month, but... Could he go to his, uh, whoever he has it with, whatever bank, and say, hey, can you increase my limit from fifteen to 18000 And will that hit his credit score, just asking for that increase? Because then maybe that would save him of going over it every month. Right. It, it could. And, of course, the reason he uses the one is because he, he gets points. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he's a smart consumer. It just he didn't know that that was one of the things that could hurt him. 
So he's going to bring back it on down and use two cards, which you know is fine. Yeah. It's just those are the kinds of things that will affect your credit score. The other thing that I will tell folks that we're seeing a lot of is if you're going to uh, buy a home or refinance your home, you want to be on the do not call list. It is well, 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 well worth it. What is that? When you get onto the credit bureau, do not call list, which we will help you with. Um, it will stop you from receiving a uh, one gentleman told me he received over 60 calls or email oh uh, excuse me, text messages. <laughs> They're just bugging the heck out of them. Um, so, yeah, it, those are some of the things you just want to do ahead of time before making that last minute, okay, I want to do this. And it, it will make the whole process that much smoother. And Robert, I do want to point out too that uh, we really appreciate you being here with the show, but also I do use you personally. And, I, and I've got to say, your service has been phenomenal. I think you say, doing what I'm doing, I gave you a couple of gray hairs, but you're always there for me. <laughs> I mean, you, you're, you're, and you've got the answers. You've got, you know, the knowledge. It's just incredible to be working with you. So I'm very happy to be working with you. You're probably the best guy I've worked with in 30 years. So Thank you very much. We do know this very, very well, the ins and the outs, and we help a lot of people. It's a, it's the largest investment in most folks' lives, and it's an important one. That's true. Well, Robert, thank you very much. We appreciate uh, the, the wisdom there, and we'll talk more next week. Thank you, guys. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You too. Again, as Robert Behick, president of Countywide Mortgage Lending. And yes, I do use him as my mortgage guy. He was working on something for me, did a great job. If you want to talk to Robert, give him a call at 760-443-3821. That's 760-443-3821. And just as a reminder, Countywide Mortgage Lending is a division of Golden Empire Mortgage, Inc., NMLS number 110485. Licensed by the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act, Countywide Mortgage Lending is an equal housing lender and proud member of the BBB. And I was going to say, too, on the credit lines, I always, once a year, increase or ask to have that increased every year because, uh, oh, I don't need that much credit. Well, well, just like Robert said, you want to make sure that you have your utilization rate low. Just because I'm going to make it extreme here, if you have $100,000 worth of (laughs) credit card capacity, doesn't mean you need to spend (laughs) $100,000. The interest is still going to be dependent on what you spend. It's not a bad idea to have the available credit. Just don't spend more than you can afford at the end of the day. And I will never forget, when I first got the Army, I went to junior college for business, and John Keegan was a professor, and he said, you ask for money when you don't need it, because when you need it, no one will give it to you. And that was, gosh, over 50 years ago. Well, not, not quite 50, but many, many years <laughs> ago. But it does hold true. You ask for money when you don't need it, because when you need it, you'll have it there for you. All right, let's go back to the companies here. Uh, we're going to move on to a, a company here called Capital One Financial. I'm sure you heard of the credit card company, speaking of credit cards, uh, who actually this past week, uh, put in a, uh, how do we say it, an offer to buy Discovery. I don't think it's done yet, is it? Yeah, it, it's not done yet. I mean, it, it's it's going to hit probably regulators. It's a $35.3 billion deal, all stock. So, I mean, we'll see. It's probably going to go through the approval process uh, with this administration. I would not be surprised if there's some hearings, some more kind of uh, research that is done on their part because uh, the combination of the two would actually create the largest credit card 
issuer with uh, around $250 billion in credit card balance. Uh, they would have about a 22% market share, which, frankly, I don't think is monopolistic at all. Well, and again, she's been very, not done very well on this. Uh, Miss Khan from the Federal Trade Commission who's tried to block Microsoft, all these deals. She's not done a good job. I'm sure she's going to be speaking up about this because it's going to like, oh, here's another one. But well, what's her first name? Is it Laura Khan? I think it's Linda. Linda Khan? Or Lena. Lena. Something. Yeah, well, yeah, one of those. She'll, she'll be in the news, but I'm sure. It's going to weigh because, like I said, it's a credit. there's two problems at stake here. There's credit card issuer, but also Discover has uh, what we call a credit card network and that's where Visa and MasterCard are the major players and they occupy about a 70% market share. Discover only has a 7% market share. So maybe a company like Capital One could actually boost that network and create more competition for a MasterCard and Visa. So you kind of have these competing thoughts for, you know, oh my gosh, you know, there's too much concentration in the credit card issuers, but it's like, yeah, or we could juice here to, to get a little bit more competition in the credit card network space. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I am a big advocate of the deal. I think it'd be great. Well, well let's take a look at Capital One. And again, you got to look at the whole deal if you're going to buy Capital One. Capital One, we've looked at before, we've never bought it, but I've always kind of liked this company. Their service is phenomenal. Uh, their symbol is COF, then the credit services industry. Uh, float short is only 2%, not bad. 88% institutional owned. Here's a nice PE ratio. Price earnings, 11.3. Half the industry at 23.9. Price of sales, 1.4 versus 4.6. Price to book value, 1.2. The industry is at 57.6, so great price to annual book value. And uh, price cash flow, 2.4 versus 13.2. Unfortunately, uh, no peg ratio here. Uh, we do see earnings over the last year are down 25.5%. The industry is up 14.8. You'd want to check why it's down. I think there were some things they probably did there, but you want to understand that before you invest in the company. Sales over last year up 6%, half the industry at 13.2. They do pay a decent dividend, 1.8%. Use 18% of their earnings to pay that out. Uh, look at the balance sheet. They're a financial company, so they don't have a current ratio, quick ratio. Debt to equity is 0.9 versus 1.4. That's a positive. Net profit margin, 14.9 versus 20.1. And return on equity, 9.5 versus 47.9. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed at these numbers, Chase. I don't know if we have something better going forward. <laughs> well, uh, let's <laughs> see here. Starting with the current price for Capital One Financial is $135.52. The 52-week low is $83.93, and the high here, $140.86. Now, here's where I'm going to say the excitement ensues. We go out to December 2025. I see estimated earnings per share of $16.16. It gives a target sell price of $268.26. I mean, that's a forward PE of around eight, eight and a half times. So, I mean, the, those future earnings are not that expensive. And it looks like they're expecting pretty darn good growth. This year, they're looking for earnings growth of 10%. Next year, earnings growth of 17%. I, I, I like what I'm seeing here. The balance sheet's always going to be a little bit wonky as a financial company. I, I think it's a... I think it's a good business. I think it's definitely worth further research here. Yeah, I, I do see those earnings from 90 days ago, ago down about 9.3%. But uh, I wonder how these earnings going forward are going to change as this uh, discovery acquisition comes into play here. Is that going to is going to be accretive or is it going to take from their earnings going forward? I don't I don't think anything like uh, like that's out yet. Yeah, no, there's definitely more that you'd have to kind of go through, and especially as I said, it's an all stock deal. So it, it, it's going to kind of create some dilution impact there for the current shareholders. But I mean, one reason I wouldn't buy a financial company, we already have too much financials in our portfolio. But if you didn't have financials, I think it's worth the research because 
there's only really four major card networks out there. I already mentioned, obviously, uh, Visa and MasterCard having 70%, and then um, Discover at 7%. American Express is really the only other large player out there that's left. So, I mean, this is a kind of, I'm going to say, a more of a unique asset, and I think in the right hands, I think it could be a, a big winner. And it, it's not going to make Capital One a, a big winner next year, but I think over the next five years, if they can put some money behind it, I think it could be... You know, great for consumers and and great for the business, frankly. Well, we we will see. I'm I I again a lot more research. We can't buy in our portfolio because we are pretty heavy on financials, which I think will do well going forward. But eh, I, I'll I'll give an agreement with you. Maybe it's worth the research there. So there's like I said, there's not many assets like it out there. And isn't there a slogan? What's in your wallet? Yeah. I it's in my so. wallet. Yeah. I got Capital One in my wallet. I don't have any Capital One, actually. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about another company that actually I use. And, and I just, uh, I, I realized that after we said, yeah, let's do Roku. Because uh, Roku has been on quite the roller coaster over the years. Uh, they're in the entertainment industry. And they're the, the TV, what do you call them? A TV streaming bundler? What do you call this company? I don't even know. what you, Yeah, it's just <laughs> like, that's where you get all your streaming apps, you know? Yeah. yeah they, they put them all in one place. It's, yeah. it's like a cable alternative kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know I've got them on, on my TVs and it just like it, it makes my life a little bit easier uh, looking at the, 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 the oh wow the short is a 9.8% so there's a more shorts in here than I thought 80% institutional owned uh, we do see unfortunately no PE ratio because they have no earnings over the last year price of sales are expensive 2.6 versus 1.9 price to book value 4.4 there's nothing for the entertainment industry so that's a positive for them Price of cash flow, 35.6 versus 18.3. No earnings growth because no earnings. Now their sales are up 11.5% year over year. That is better than the industry at 5.5. This five-year growth rate makes you want to buy the stock. It's 43% versus 16.7. The analysts really have high expectations that Roku is going to grow. And again, based on what I'm using, it does make my life a lot easier doing my streaming. Uh, we do not see on the balance sheet, current ratio 2.4 versus 1.1. Debt to equity, very positive. Only 0.3 versus 2.1 tells you not much debt on the balance sheet. I, I also got to point out the intangibles, only 4.8%. The industry's at 56%, so that's another positive for them. Uh, their net profit margin, unfortunately, is a negative 20.4%. They're losing 20 cents on the dollar right now. And return on equity is a negative 30.5. So currently not looking good, but is there good news going forward? Well, let's start here with the current price for Roku. It's $64.48. The 52-week range here, $51.62 to $108.84. I, I, I did something kind of fun here, I'm going to say. I went sure. back five <laughs> years. <laughs> the five-year return for Roku now is uh, it's about flat. So five years ago is essentially where it was. But the crazy thing is back in like, uh, middle of 2021, it hit its all-time high of, let's see here, I think it was like $479 a share. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and I remember some of them talking about it when it was like 60 or 70, it's going to go up. I, I thought it went up to 200. You said it went up to 400? 479.50 was the all-time high. There you go. Buying the hype. What a great idea. And, and it's that roller yeah. coaster again where yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, I bought it five years ago and two years into it. I'm so smart. I bought it at 60 and now it's at 400. I knew it. And, and now here we are. You rode it all the way back down to where you bought it. And there's probably one or two people across the country that sold at 400. <laughs> there might be more than that. We'll, we'll give people more credit. <laughs> but looking forward for this company, I, I'm going to say a little bit disappointed. I go into December 2025, I see estimated earnings per share 
Well, there are none. It's an estimated loss of $1.31. So still no estimated profits for this company years later. And and I just always wonder, companies like this, when they have kind of been in business and been around for as long as Roku has now and, and kind of gone through, I'm going to say, a lot of the hype and a lot of people using them, what is going to be that turning point for them to now be able to generate that profit? I mean, I feel like a lot of people already have Roku, so how are gonna how are they gonna make that transition essentially? I think, and again, we haven't researched this company. I I, I wouldn't put in our portfolio because of the loss going forward. But I think what they're trying to do is get more services because when I go on Roku, they are advertising different yeah. things. Do this here, um, but we we just can't invest in a company that has no earnings currently or for that factor going forward. So, I mean, this stock could go from, we'll say 40 uh, to, to maybe 200. Yeah, 60, um, 60 to 200. Well, well, no, it go down to forty. Oh, go down to forty. To, I mean, yeah. you could have a wild oh, yeah. ride on this and, and and make no money on it. So I, I this one of the things I, I I like the company. I like using Roku on my TV, but I'm not going to recommend buying the stock. It's just uh, I, I can't put my arms around it. And if I can't justify why I bought it, and again, we got an answer to what twelve hundred clients like this is why we bought it. If it goes down, well, why'd you buy it? Well. I, I felt it was going to be good. I like the little remotes that they right. come in. You know? <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't go well with clients. <laughs> well, we, we got a couple minutes left here. I, I, I thought we'd try to sneak in if we could here real quick. Uh, Semper Energy, because we'll, you know we've been talking about utilities. Uh, they seem to have been, been kind of down somewhat. So we thought maybe we can find some value in a utility. So we thought, well, let, let's we're here in San Diego. Let's look at Semper Energy, which actually is not SDG&E here locally. I, th- I think they're now nationwide, worldwide. They're a huge company. Now. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah so, at least regional. Regional, yeah. So uh, they're in the utilities diversified industry. Uh, we do see only 2% float on the short side, 88% institutional owned. PE ratio 16.7. That's above the industry at 14. Uh, we do see price of sales 2.7 versus 0.7. Price of book value 1.8, far better than the industry at 12.6. Price of cash flow, 9.5, double the industry at 4.4, and peg ratio is good, 3.6 versus 47.2. Now, the earnings have climbed by 30.5% over the past year, well above the industry at 6.3. Sales up 15.5%. The industry saw a decline of 7.6%. Five-year growth rate, well, it's a utility, only 4.1%, but better than the industry at 2.5. We do see a yield of 3.3%. I'm surprised they used 55% of their earnings to pay that out. That's higher than I thought it would be. Uh, we do see that uh, on the balance sheet, current ratio 0.6 versus 0.9. Debt equity 1.1 versus 1.6. I'm a little bit concerned on the lack of liquidity there. That, that could cause them some problems. Net profit margin, 16.6. Very good, especially compared to the industry at uh, 3.6. And return on equity, 9.7 versus 6.4. What do you got, Chase? Yeah, so current price for Sempra, $71.97. See the 52-week low here, $63.75. And the high, $79.52. Looking out to, it looks like they haven't reported earnings just yet. I, I'm still going out to December 2024. I see estimated earnings per share of $4.82. It gives a target sell price of about $80 a share, $80.01. So I, it's frankly not in our buy category, be in our hold category. I'm a little bit disappointed by that. I do see as well that they are, looks like San Diego, uh, Orange County, and it looks like they have Sempra Texas Utilities uh, and Southern California Gas Company. So it, it looks like they're mainly going to be here in Southern California. And they used to have, I don't know if they still do have, is a Sempra Trading. 
which was not too bad. But Could yeah, be. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a closing bell, unfortunately. Gosh, I went by quick. A lot of great information. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858 224 Again, that's 858 224 0004 or go to our website smartinvesting2000.com that's smartinvesting2000.com you can listen to the podcast there if you're missing the show thanks for listening we'll be back next week right here on the smart investing show i did all that and may i say